Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. A spiritual journey describes a process of a person embarking on a quest to deepen their understanding, knowledge, and wisdom about themselves, the world, and a higher power. For most of us, spiritual awakening is brought about by life-changing events and by meeting mentors who change the way that we think. While every spiritual journey is unique, there are some commonalities. And my guest today, Dan Millman, brings those to the forefront in his new memoir, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Dan Millman teaches the peaceful warrior's way in the United States and around the world. Author of 18 books published in 29 languages, Millman is a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and college professor. His bestseller, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, was adapted to a feature film starring Nick Nolte. In this interview, Dan is going to share the lessons that he learned from his evolution from childhood dreamer to a world-class athlete over a span of two decades. He'll describe an approach to living with a peaceful heart and a warrior spirit, an open path that's accessible to anyone who's prepared to move to the next stage of their awakening. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Dan. How are you doing today? Great, Celine. Really nice to join you today. Yeah, um, it is an honor to have you on the show. Your personal philosophy and your teachings are so inspiring and eclectic. And I'm just really excited to, to share your wisdom with our listeners today. Well, me too. It's going to be great. And, uh, and I want to start by talking about, you know, all the great books that you've written. You've written a lot of great books, but you're most well known for uh, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Uh, which has inspired yeah. millions of readers. Uh, but your latest book, uh, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, is more personal. It's a memoir of your own spiritual quest, uh, which describes your, uh, your journey, your evolution from student to teacher. So, Dan, what made you feel like uh, you're ready to write about your journey and the lessons you learned along the way? Well, first, there's a, a proverb. I love to collect quotations. It's been a hobby for 40 years, Celine. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful quote. Uh, God invented women and men because God loves stories. So I want to acknowledge we all have a story that's our treasure. There's not a single story on the planet exactly like yours or mine or anyone else's. So it really, we need to cherish each 
story just because I thought everyone wants to read about this Dan Millman character, but because it's about a spiritual quest that in a sense represents the major aspects people take, the major facets are represented by four actual mentors I worked with almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, that justified the book so it might shed light on all our journeys, our common quest. And as far as when, um, why I wrote the book now, well, I wanted to, it sandwiched in between being too young and not having perspective, enough life to look back on. And now that I'm 75, I have more life to look back on than forward to very likely. Um, but I also wanted to write it while I still had my memories and full capacities. <laughs> so it seemed like the perfect time to write Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit. All right. All right. That that makes a lot of sense. And we'll definitely talk. We'll talk about your your mentors in depth, uh, because I know there's a lot that to unpack over there. Um, and you were an athlete and a coach. And I'm curious to know, uh, during during those times, how did you deal with with the pressure? Because I know that you you went you went through a lot during those times, a lot of challenges. So was there a particular technique school of thought or a healing modality that that really, really worked for you? Or was it like a blend of everything you learned? Hmm. Well, looking back, um, there were times I felt pressure as a child, um, though not a lot. For some reason, I, I was accepted enough by my father, my mother. So that's a real blessing. I didn't have to always try to please them, even though I liked doing that. I didn't have to. I had their approval, and that's such a a great thing for children. Um, So that my identity, my worth, was never really riding on any particular achievement. Uh, And when I discovered an old trampoline at a summer camp and discovered I loved jumping, not only jumping up and down and feeling free from gravity, if only for a fraction of a second, but also the joy of learning new tricks. I loved to learn when I was a kid. Um, again, no pressure riding on it. So, but as time went on, there were times as an athlete uh, in, in, as you know, the book actually opens up after the preface, the book opens up in midair appropriate for me, uh, at the world trampoline championships in London, England. Um, so even then you might say, well, you must've felt a great deal of pressure, but for me, gymnastics was always a performance art. It was a chance to perform. So I suppose the same kind of pressure people might feel about to perform on stage Mm -hmm. or with a musical instrument. Um, I felt that kind, but I don't know. The the only difference between fear and excitement is whether we're breathing. So I just remembered to breathe. And um, to me, it was a challenge to psych up and and go for it. That was my my psyche. It seemed like when you were performing, uh, doing these gymnastic routines, you were in the flow, right? You were, you just connected to something, something like that's out of your body. And you kind of like went with that. You let, you let it carry you. I remember I you saying that. It. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it, it was like the absolutely for in a way, see athletes, it's the beginning of a spiritual practice. Athletics uh, brings you into that zone, that focus, that flow. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so does playing a musical instrument, um, performing in that way. So it's not just, uh, uh, but athletes, sometimes their body's on the line in what I call warrior sports, where you could be injured or killed if you're not paying attention. So in a way, it's a beginner's meditation. The hardest part is just sitting quietly in a room with your eyes closed or half closed and and find the same focus because it's so easy to let the mind drift when you're just sitting. But when you're in sports, the, the demand for focus is there. So it's a preview. It's a, Athletes have experienced that zone. Yeah. They love that feeling. It's why we like to throw Frisbees and play catch and perform right. because it brings us back to that present moment. Could you say it's a kind of dynamic meditation? Yes, something exactly. Like that? Yeah, because exactly. I experience that when I'm running, like when I'm, I get in the zone and I kind of get into a totally different space, you know? Um, right. So, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. I'm not an athlete, but I, you know, I experience it when I run. Well, there's an old proverb, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. Yeah. So you can relate viscerally to what I'm talking about. It's not Absolutely. some intellectual idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Most people can, having done one thing or another to bring them into that state. Um, and yeah, as I described at the World Championship, it was an extraordinary focus uh, because I'd had four hours sleep. I arrived in London from California the night, late at night, midnight yes. or so. And I got very little sleep. It was like a dream. And not to mention jet lag, which just I had had very little sleep. And two of my major, the other really good trampolinists from the U.S. at the time, we were the top in the world at the time. They had their coaches with them. Um, One was a senior in college. I was a freshman. Um, They'd been there a couple of days early to acclimate. So one wouldn't have guessed from seeing me warm up that this guy's going to win. and I wouldn't have guessed it was more, let's see what happens. I'm just going to do my best. So I've always focused on more on what I can control. And, and I don't worry as much about what's not in my control. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how old were you um, when that happened? I was 18. I, I had okay. turned 18. Yeah. I was, I was about 18. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I mean, I, it must have been an incredible feeling after you realized what happened, you know? Like, yeah, first it was a bit unreality. Sometimes you see actors get in a big award and they go into this state where they're not sure it's true. It's like a dream. So it felt like that a bit, but then I I reflected on it. Wow, you know, wow, yeah. I, I won. Um, but it didn't make me a legend in my own mind. I never have been, I'm still not. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it just meant I had a good day. I had some good moments. Yeah. Uh, I rose to the occasion that felt good. That was satisfying. Yeah. Uh, the numbers and the scores and those kinds of things never meant as much to me. Um, so much of gymnastics today, anybody who's seen gymnastics, it's taking un- unique individual performances, translating them into numbers, and then comparing the numbers to see who is best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that n- never meant much to me. I love just performing. I gave away all my medals and trophies to the YMCA, to kids. Uh, oh. They like that sort of thing. But it didn't mean much to me that the medals and the trophies um, – uh, as much as in the moment, you know, the performance. And I think that's why you were, you're so successful because you never let that get to you. You didn't develop this grandiosity, you know, that, you know, you never let things get to your head, your achievements. Cause many people like that leads to their downfall. 
I was lucky in that way. And when we get yeah. into the later, when we get into the four mentors, um, the same thing can happen to spiritual teachers. I know. They, yeah. they get corrupted mm-hmm. by the adulation of their devotees exactly. or their fans. They start believing their newspaper clippings, so to speak. And right. I, I, fortunately, I, I was not only not prone to that, um, because I, I just seen too much success and failure both in my mm. life. Uh, yeah. I saw my weaknesses, the work I did, I could see my foibles. And, you know, athletes um, are there for practical outcomes, if mm-hmm. not abstract ideas and notions and, and pretense. You can't mm-hmm. pretend to do push-ups <laughs> or run. Oh, you, know? you can't. <laughs> so, no, uh, yeah. it's, it wasn't self-image. So I was fortunate in that way. Just life had given me this set of circumstances that led one thing led to the next in my case. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that having that that down to earth nature helped you overcome perhaps one of the the biggest uh, biggest challenges you faced? I mean, um, for our listeners who haven't read the book, uh, you actually had uh, a shattered thigh bone, right? You had a massive injury and, you know, had a long road to recovery after that and you couldn't get back to competitive sports. Um, So. I mean, what did this whole experience teach you? Because, you know, as you, you obviously had uh, the sensibilities and uh, that nature to see you through these tough times. But what was it that really helped you to move through that, that whole period? Well, I, I think many people can relate to having an injury, whether it's a small injury, a stub toe or a more major injury. And yeah. people have been injured worse than I was, too. Brain injuries and so on. Or oh, yeah. Spinal injuries. I was fortunate in that way. I just had a shattered leg. Uh, my right thigh bone was in 40, right. or 40 pieces or so. Um, yeah. and, and yes, it was painful, dislocating, disrupting in my life. I'd trained for 10 years. I was uh, moving toward the Olympic uh, trials. Right. Um, and so, yes, it was, it was obviously disappointing. Um, and anybody who's read Way of the Peaceful Warrior, I describe it in that book, also in the piece, the movie mm-hmm. based on the book. Yes. It, mm-hmm. it depicts that. But um, it was, it, yeah, I was in shock in the hospital. I was I was supposed to go to Yugoslavia, uh, then Yugoslavia, uh, mm-hmm. it was called, um, a couple of days after that. And I asked the doctor if I'd still be able to go and train in a few more days. Because I, you know, he said, "Well, in six months you might be able to walk, uh, reg- you know, normally again," uh, and so that kind of was a wake-up call. But when I realized the situation, it, it did shake me up. Uh, it, I wasn't bulletproof anymore. So many twenty-somethings are in that bulletproof phase, phase of life; they can do anything. And 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 I started questioning, you know, gee, uh, my mortality—I could have been killed. Um, and I, I guess, like I like to say for the record, the way I'm sh- depicted in the movies, weaving through traffic and speeding on the motorcycle, that I didn't drive like that. I was pretty careful. But it, it's not uncommon to have a car turn in front of you, and I wasn't experienced enough on mm-hmm. the motorcycle, and I didn't yeah. have to crash into it's it. It's not that you were reckless. It was just... No, I wasn't. Yeah. I wasn't being mm-hmm. reckless. If I had, yeah. I'd cop to it. I'd say I was being careless. Yeah. Um, but no, I, in fact, if I'd been speeding, I would have been killed probably, but... Um, in any case, that injury was, I didn't know. I was in a place of uncertainty. Um, I knew I had yeah. a broken leg. I knew legs could heal. Um, I had to have a rod put in my leg and some bone mm. taken out of my hip and put yeah. in my leg. So it was a pretty serious break. Um, so 
In that case, uh, I, I was trying to do push-ups in my hospital bed before I left the hospital. And yeah. then I was just focused on upper body strength. And I just said, let's see what I can do. You know, I've learned since then that we cannot control the outcomes in, my, in our lives. Uh, we can't always be guaranteed to reach a goal, but mm-hmm. we can control our efforts. And by making a good effort, we increase the odds of getting our desired outcome over not making the effort. So uh, effort is success. And I made the best effort I could over time. And I was able to get back on, on my team and uh, what, ha- what all that followed. Yeah. And I really admired you for that. I was like, wow, he, he made the best of, of the circumstances that he was in. And, uh, and I mean, that's wonderful. And I couldn't help but wonder, Dan, did you have uh, an identity crisis when this happened? Because, you know, your whole life was uh, gymnastics. So did you experience that for a while? Well, yes to no. Um, It was part of my identity. I had trained. But to me, instead of saying I am a gymnast, and the words are important, I said I do gymnastics. Ah. So it wasn't my identity. You can't say I am a doctor. No, I practice medicine. I am a Mm -hmm. musician. No, I play a musical instrument. That way, our identity isn't on the line. So I was still me, but I was a more sober and thoughtful and reflective me. Um, So there was a a kind of crisis. What am I going to do with my life if I don't get back to this? I had such a strong goal I'd been working toward. So there was that. And many people may be able to relate to that. But I think in a bigger picture here, Celine, it was a form of adversity. It was a difficulty. It was a challenge. And we've all experienced physical, emotional, or mental pain in our life. Yes, And at, at the same time, I, I often remind people that I think we can all agree that when we've faced those challenges, those difficulties, that adversity, we're a little bit stronger for, for having done that, a little bit wiser. Sometimes digging out of a dark hole, which it felt like I was doing, can give one the strength to climb the mountain. So it is a reminder that we don't have to pretend to like adversity when it happens. I didn't... I didn't say some slogans and pretend it was a great thing. And and yet looking back, it changed the course of my life. I wouldn't be here speaking with you if that hadn't happened. I believe that. I I might've just been a sports announcer or a coach doing that for my life. Or I would have looked back. I I was an Olympian, but it did uh, um, really send me inward and, and wondering what is life about? And I started asking bigger questions as a result of this. And we've all heard the saying that we can't always control what happens to us, but we can, but our response is going to be key. How do we respond to what happens to us? And so I hope I've served as a good example in in that way. Yeah, you certainly have. I mean, a lot of people would not be able to process adversity in in the way that you did. You know, they might look for um, comfort in, in unhealthy things, or they might just kind of lose, lose their way. I mean, anything could have happened, uh, but you chose to look within you and, you know, probe deeper and kind of look for, for, you know, the wisdom and the learning in your experiences. And I think that's great. Well, lemons to lemonade, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I, I just, pretty I much. Made best, I made the best I could of it. So yes, that's, that's yes, you did. Yeah. 
But the sports, you know, the, the kid discovering a trampoline, not realizing it was going to change his life and direct him through college on a scholarship and gymnastics and yeah. all that followed. Um, and then the sports and then led to, to coaching um, at Stanford University. And I learned a lot in coaching and teaching and mentoring myself. You know, many people are in business. They, they're managers. But I, I think managers should view themselves as coaches. They mm. do much the same thing. They're coaching their team. And um, so I learned a great deal about management, about motivation, um, about meaning, uh, and finding what what reached each gymnast to give their their best Um, without manipulation, just to encourage them. And I, I, by that time I was exposed to Zen ideas and some Sufi ideas. And Mm. um, so I, I wove that into uh, the coaching and, and, and there may have, you know, I was a pretty good coach. I understood the mechanics, the biomechanics of gymnastics, but also, uh, I tried to connect it to their lives. Mm-hmm. The moment somebody is in a sport or they're a musician and they go, you know, what I'm doing is really like life. It mm-hmm. reflects my life. How we do mm-hmm. anything is how we do everything. And once they we have that realization, they're on the path of mastery, not just expertise. Right. And that, that happens when they have a good mentor, or a good coach around them, right? That helps. You know, I'm very grateful for some of the mentors and coaches and role models I've had in my life. Yeah, you've had a few. Let's talk about them. Uh, you know, much of your memoir describes your experiences with, uh, with each of your radically different mentors. Uh, and you refer to them as the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage. Uh, yeah. So... Tell us about them, Dan. Like, how, who were they, and how did they, how did they shape you as a person? Well, first of all, they are real people, and of course, I give their names. Um, I, I don't do it right off in the book. Uh, well, actually, I do pretty early on. But you know, people may be tempted to look them up online, Wikipedia, whatever, and they'll see things that are really positive about them and negative about them, as you see for any book reviews, for example. Um, but I wanted to share my experience, which I think was pretty balanced. I don't think I was I there think so just too. to criticize. You know, yeah. I, I saw mm-hmm. their strengths. But one of the central themes of the book that I learned working with these four mentors over a 20-year period, one after the next, uh, was that all teachers, all mentors are human. And all humans yeah. have they're fallible. And foibles yeah. and fallible. Um, yeah. and, and if we go in idealistically, then we get disillusioned and all that. They, but I thought they were a perfect master. But really, they're human beings um, and maybe a little wiser. That's why they end up teaching and attracting followers. But these were radically different people that each represent a different approach that people take toward what we call enlightenment, transcendence, liberation, the life's bigger picture. And the professor... Uh, I'm not going to go into all the circumstances yeah, of course. how I yeah, met yeah. how I, but I want, yeah. I want listeners, I want readers to understand and appreciate why I was attracted to them, even to the point of them saying, gosh, I wish I'd had that teacher. I wish I'd had that experience, but then I'm going to explain why I moved on. And so I think the reader will become wiser having gone through this experience with me and really see some of these things for their strengths and their liabilities. So the the professor created a school through his own unusual background. He was a prodigy Mm -hmm. um, that's really never quite been on the planet in this form for modern men and women 
who want to do step-by-step, do the exercises, wake up. Uh, He promised illumination, enlightenment at the end of a 40-day training. I took 40 days, 10 hours a day, intense. The way it was put together with 50 different kinds of meditations for different purposes, um, deep breath work of various kinds, um, deep relaxation work, movement training, psychophysical movement training. And this was in the 70s? This was in the seventies. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Was, Just giving some actually, context to everybody. Yeah. Thank you. It was yeah. around nineteen seventy-three. Many yeah. people think of the sixties as being the spiritual time. You know, the 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 hippies and and make yeah. love not war and all yes. that. And of course, yes. I grew up. I went to I went to Berkeley during the late sixties. Wow, um, that must have been that must have been very exciting. <laughs> it, it, it was the time. There was, was so much going on at that going time. On there. Yeah. There was, there was, and I, I, it was almost like that movie Gone with the Wind where they walk through the backdrop of Atlanta burning. Well, to me, it was like that background drop. I, I walked through Sproul Plaza and Mario Savio was on the top of the car and the police were surrounding him and crowds were doing the free speech movement, the sit-ins. My mother was very progressive uh, politically and she was so disappointed I wasn't sitting in, but I was busy training and studying. Um, That was my goal and my focus. I definitely sympathized with which with much of the protests, including the Vietnam War protests. Uh, yeah. It seemed a crazy war to me, uh, um, but I there were enough people doing it, and I just didn't need to add my voice. I thought I could do more good doing what I was doing, so I continued training and studying. Um, so anyway, during that time, then the seventies really were when people started looking. It was a deep time of introspection. Mm-hmm. Uh, the EST training started in the 70s and all kinds of different spin-offs. And there were many, many teachers, gurus came from India and so on and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, a lot of cults but, too. Oh, a lot of cults. Yeah. yeah. And as, mm-hmm. as well, I'll get to that when we talk about the gurus. Yes. But, uh, the professor had a technological approach. Do these exercises, see what the results are. No beliefs mm-hmm. were required. You just did the work. And it was intensive. Group process models of levels of consciousness and how we deal with uh, tension release in constructive or less constructive ways. Uh, So there was a great deal of self-knowledge and uh, introspection. Some people have heard of the Enneagram books. Well, all those books, that system came from the professor. Oh, really? Oh, Oh, yeah. He he was absolutely the source. A man named Claudio Naranjo studied with him in Chile, where, where he taught originally. Okay. Um, and um, Naranjo taught other people, including Helen Palmer, who was one of the Enneagram authors and mm-hmm. others. But they all finally admitted there was a court case. And they finally admitted, yes, the professor named Oscar Ichazo. He was the source of this mm-hmm. modern day Enneagram material. So there was a great deal of depth. So, But I, I found that I was going through personal things with my first marriage. I was married to a lady named eight for eight years. Mm-hmm. And I realized... The inner work was just getting me better at doing inner work. There was a firewall between it and everyday life. So I ended up becoming somewhat disillusioned after the advanced training, the professors, and then more of the training with the professor. I finally moved on and discovered soon after the guru. And it wasn't just that I was taken with him because there were many, many different gurus, teachers, but it was uh, Alan Watts that I've been waiting for such a one my whole life. And Ken Wilber, who was, He's a respected scholar, uh, studied every kind of different tradition, said um, the, the guru, 
uh, seems to understand these teachings better than their originators. So they were both very taken with. So I had a lot of company. There were some very intelligent people. Yeah, yeah. And he was young too. He was young he was too, young. right? He was in his he early thirties. Yeah. Yes. And he was also he'd gone to Columbia in philosophy, got an MA exactly in English. Yeah. He was a yeah. brilliant writer. Brilliant, I discovered yeah. his first three books. And mm-hmm. but he was also he functioned though not just as a writer or a teacher, but he functioned as a. a how do I put it, transparent to the divine. And by just sitting with him, okay. people could, he could transmit this kind of force, this experience, this rarefied, numinous kind of experience of transcendence. Um, okay. Just sitting with him in uh, what's called darshan. Um, yes. Uh, satsang also. It's another satsang, yeah. Yep. This, yeah. And mm-hmm. so I, I was a student and a follower of him, uh, and there were many experiences, life conditions. Every moment of the day, we had to practice. Like many Orthodox Jews or, or mm-hmm. Muslims, you know, there's yeah. practice it sounded all intense. the time. Yeah, it was intense. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, my my wife Joy of 45 years now. Yes, we were together through the professor, through yeah. the guru, and the other teachers. So yeah, it was nice reading her, her her perspective on on all these teachers as well. It was it? I'm I'm yeah. glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, she read every draft of my book. I did about nine drafts before it was wow. done. I, I cut a 500-page unruly hedge into a bonsai, you know, just okay. trimming and trimming it to make it. That's actually the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. For, to 200 pages, what do you cut? Well, I yeah. cut 300 pages from the original uh, wow. overwritten. Is that locked up somewhere? <laughs> yeah, it's on my computer, but I, okay. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do a director's cut. If you've ever seen director's cuts of movies, usually they're too long. <laughs> I know. Uh, there's a reason they cut them. Cut them down. Exactly. And so, I, you know, Jack London, the writer, once said, it, "It takes hard writing to make easy reading." And I, I put the effort in to make mm. it a crisp reading. But mm-hmm. anyway, she read every draft, and at one point, she said, "Dan, I see things a little differently from you. What if I wrote a little something?" And so she has about 10 pages, as you know, of commentary mm-hmm. sprinkled through the whole 200 page mm-hmm. book. And many people seem to enjoy her, her take, her, her fresh yeah. take on, on that experience uh, through our time with the guru and then our time with the man I call the warrior priest who followed the guru. And the sage. Yeah. For various reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, uh, he was an adventurer. He was a, uh, unlike my other teacher, he, he was a, a martial arts instructor, metaphysician, mm-hmm. a healer, uh, and a charismatic, adventurous, dramatic type of guy. He brought back, he helped me come back to my full confidence as a teacher because the guru's community was not the place to learn self-trust. It was all about trusting the divine through the guru. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was another version. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, I'm reading about the version. guru triggered me a little bit because when I read about the stuff he was into, I was like, oh, I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. But at the start, at the start, yeah. he really did have the mojo. I mean, he was yeah. a- amazing and very, very wise. Anybody who reads his books, the earlier ones, not the mm-hmm. later ones, they got more strange. Every other word capitalizes. But in the early days, so people need to understand that. There, there can be teachers who start out pure. I don't know this for a fact, but I heard that Jim's Jones, James Jones. Oh, James Jones, yeah. Jones, mm-hmm. Jim Jones, he yep. was apparently a pure teacher at the beginning. But then oh, really? things got very weird. Oh. Teachers can change over time. I they're, guess when they, they get all the power, it you know, it 
I, I think it gets exactly. to their head, right? Yeah. It not all teachers, but many. Yeah. Many teachers that were wonderful teachers, Yogi Bhajan, Chogyan Trungpa, so many of them turned alcoholics. They, they yeah. um, started having sex with all their devotees. Um, yeah. And that can happen. So one needs to stay vigilant, not assume the person at the beginning is the same later on. What, what, so how are you able to, to kind of not think about that, not let that... Um, change your view on on the guru uh, when you when you found out all these things about him did it did it change your whole um, view on him as a teacher and or were you able to just be like hey that's that's just that's just his weakness and it is what it is well i wouldn't even call it weakness i would call it exploitation frankly exploitation okay yeah i was uh, you know in other words um for whatever reason i was able to maybe being a Pisces or something. I don't know. I'm able to see two sides of every issue. So oh, I'm a Gemini. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's so yeah. many of you, Celine. <laughs> um, so the, the thing is, um, it didn't negate his strengths, the fact that okay. he had weaknesses. Um, okay. But that's what eventually left us, led Joy and I to say, this is not where we want to be anymore. Yeah. Um, we were, we were, not shocked because we'd heard rumors for a while that, I mean, we knew he had nine wives while we were still studying with him and so on. Uh, but that was, he was never claiming to be a celibate, pure white robed monk from the start. He said, this is oh, crazy. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he never claimed that he wasn't a hypocrite at, yeah. at all, um, okay. but it got wilder and wilder. Now he claimed he was having to sink to the level of his devotees uh, to teach them life lessons and all that sounded just after a while too much rationalization. Um, but I don't want to belabor that because, as I wrote in the back near the end of the book, if we just judge them for their their weaknesses, we end up with a caricature. And they had great strengths as well. He still wrote brilliant books. It's like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci may have been uh, cruel to the women they were with. And that's that's bad, and you have to see that and acknowledge it, just like some of the founding fathers in our in the U.S. Uh, had slaves. Um, so you have to acknowledge that, and not ignore it or gloss over it or rationalize it. But at the same time, Leonardo had great inventions and created incredible art, and so did Michelangelo. Should we throw out the David because he was abusive at times? This is, a, 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 I don't suggest an answer, but we read about actors we admire, for example, and then we read mm-hmm. about their personal lives, which are kind of a mess sometimes. Right. And so do we just stop watching their movies if they're brilliant actors? So this is a tough question that I haven't fully resolved. Yeah. I just you know we need to recognize their strengths, recognize their weaknesses, and see them as fallible human beings yeah. that may have made contributions nonetheless. So what you're saying is we have to be, we have to be discerning, but at the same time, we have to accept the fact that they're human and, you know, they're, they're prone to making mistakes and no, just as anyone else. And again, I don't even use the word mistake because mistake is you stumble and you trip and you fall. They did something deliberately. They may have regretted it later on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But... Even my motorcycle crash, you could say it was a mistake or an accident, but I was driving in dusk on a motorcycle. At least yeah. I was wearing a helmet. 
<laughs> so the consequences were such that I opened myself up to a higher level of risk. Uh-huh. Um, it took me many years to learn that. By the way, the guru also, at the same time as he was doing all these things, he was sitting with us. He was devoting a lot of his life to instructing us. Um, he once said that there are many cults. He said, cult is just a word for people who surround a teacher, an idea, an activity. They're chess cults, you know, or they're cults around movie stars uh, or singers um, and and spiritual teachers. He Uh said, the question is not whether something is a cult, but Uh whether it's benign or or damaging, whether it's uh, uh, encouraging or manipulative. Mm-hmm. So he pointed that out. And he, he once said, you know, we're not in a cult because it's hard to get into and it's easy to leave. And exactly. that was very true about that community. It was not easy. You had to follow these life conditions to even approach the community and live in a community household. It was not easy to get into, but one could just get up and leave whenever they wanted. However, that is uh, very different from, you know, what other cults, right? You know, they give, they usually, it's difficult for people to get out and they don't have that option. Exactly. They're manipulated. They're sometimes physically restrained. They're pressured, all those things. But uh, in our community, it's just like um, for a courtesy, we could just say, by the way, I'm I'm moving out of my household. I'm leaving the community. And they'd say, well, bless you, you know, good luck. Um, The thing is though, as I point out in the book, even though, even in, in, in groups like mine, when it was quote unquote easy to leave, psychologically can be very difficult because most people don't give their lives over to a teacher thinking they're the second best teacher around. They believe this is my road, the path, maybe the only path to enlightenment, to awakening. And so it's not easy psychologically to say, oh, I think I'll leave now. So it's like a steel thread. And people have to recognize that that it, it can take a tremendous resolve and character to break away. And there are people who were in the community with me who are still, even, even though he's passed away, um, um, they're still, well, look, I'm grateful to all my teachers. Mm-hmm. I see them realistically, but I still have gratitude for what I learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the warrior priest had, you know, as you know, a, a physical mishap. Yes. Um, uh, and, and it changed his personality, but he was he was so helpful to me and yeah. many others. And and the sage, the final teacher, finally brought me down to earth. By the way, after the after the professor and the guru, I was done with teachers. I I felt I had had two of the heaviest hitters on the planet. Mm. Why do I need a third teacher? Who follows that act or those acts? So I wasn't looking for the warrior priest, but through circumstances I describe, we ended up meeting and it was like finding a long lost brother. I knew him. I spent time with him. We traveled together, taught together. That was different from my experiences with the professor or the guru, where they were just distant figures, aloof. So that was a very, and it was part of my evolution. But again, it's not really so much about me. It's, I hope, this is my greatest hope for the book that readers will go, wow, I see a lot about me in this. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm learning, I'm recognizing things that can help my life, not just right. about this Dan Millman fellow. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, it definitely helps, Dan. But what what uh, really stands out in your story is that there's so much synchronicity 
you know, in meeting all these teachers and, you know, that may or may not happen for, for most people. So if they are looking for mentors and teachers, you know, of, of that caliber, of that high caliber, what can they do to increase their chances of finding them? Uh, well, you know, there, there's a saying most of us have heard who are into the quest is when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. Uh, but many people misunderstand that. It's a nice bumper, you know, bumper sticker slogan. But yeah. many people think when the student has suffered enough or deserving enough or worked mm-hmm. hard enough or been initiated, then a teacher mm-hmm. like Socrates or like one of my mentors or, you know, will appear in their life to guide them or kick them up the path. But what I believe is more true is when the student is ready or paying attention, uh, the teacher appears everywhere. You can learn a light, valuable life lesson from watching a cloud drift across the sky or a tree bend with the wind instead of breaking. So nature has always been my primary teacher. And again, I've had many role models. We all have. One of those, one or, f- or two or three teachers we had in, uh, in middle school or, or high school or college that really stand out for us. But even out of the academic surroundings, there are people who've inspired us. We wanted to emulate. But so I've had those two, uh, and we all have. Here's the thing. Uh, in my case, I hit a point. See, I was really into self-improvement when I was young. I took speed reading and memory courses. Yes, I, I saw that. Cards, yeah. That yeah, you, you, you studied and, magic, right? That, that was Yeah, I studied yeah. magic, sleight of yeah. hand. Um, yeah. For example, I'll show a trick right now. You see this pen? Okay. Okay, it's going to disappear. Look, it's gone. And now it's back. So There you go. I I want to demonstrate that. So sleight of hand, my grandkids grandkids enjoy that. Um, So, uh, yes, magic and ventriloquism and this and that. I love to learn and I love to improve myself. However, one day it just a light bulb went on, one of those moments. And I went, you know, no matter how much I improve myself, only one person benefits. But Mm -hmm. if I could help other people, if I could influence other people, maybe many, Mm -hmm. I don't, didn't know how I would do that at the time uh, because I was teaching gymnastics, but Mm -hmm. I said that would make my life more meaningful. So I believe Mm -hmm. because of my commitment to share whatever I learned with other people, maybe that opened me up on some level to discover the teachers that I did. I went to the efforts. Uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't easy to break away from life for 40 days and spend 10 hours a day diving into this training. But I was highly uh, motivated. I had a lot of meaning because this could help me in the future to teach others to share. So I was always studying and learning it enough so I could teach it. Yeah. So you were guided by a purpose. That's what made you really uh, look out for, for information and all these teachings. It was a central core of my life to learn and to grow. And what is life about? And I think that motorcycle crash uh, let me ask those bigger questions Mm. rather than just following a conventional success path. Um, And, you know, many of us have had the experience where we're seeking success, more money and status and respect uh, in a high level profession, whatever it is. And many people become disillusioned. You know, as, as Joseph Campbell once put it, 
they climb to the top of the ladder and find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, and then they start retooling and wondering, what is life really about? What am I here for? Um, yeah. And that can happen. That can happen in the 40s, you know, when they call them midlife crises. But the midlife really, crisis. it's, like a mid, it's a mid-course correction where yeah. they, we start looking back on our lives. What do, what do I really want? What did I start out with? Am I getting it? And what can I do? What shifts can I make in my life? And mm-hmm. so I hope this book, like my first book, Peaceful Way of a Peaceful Warrior, mm-hmm. I, I hope Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit will help uh, remind people of that, maybe serve as a wake-up call. And by the way, the reason I call it Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit is because I view everyone as a peaceful warrior in training. And you might say, well, really? why is that just... You know, yes, I, it's not just a label or a club you can join. People write yeah. to me and they say, Oh, I, I wish I could be a peaceful warrior. I say, You are, you're in training right now. Because who isn't striving to live with a more peaceful heart, a sense of equanimity, serenity in the chaos and change of everyday life? We're all seeking that. We and are, same, right. You know, and at the same time, there are times we need a warrior spirit just to deal with the challenges of everyday life. Um, it's not about fighting. It's about inner strength, standing up tall inside of ourselves. And so that's why I say we're all peaceful warriors in training, striving to live with a peaceful heart, but also a warrior spirit. Yeah, that's beautiful. But do you think that everyone has that capacity then to to, yes. to be a peaceful warrior? Like even yeah. the sociopaths right? <laughs> or narciss- narcissists well, or... Yeah, you know, there, there are people and, and more of I'm glad more of us to be coming aware of various so, psychopath, psychopathy and sociopathy because yeah. um, there. Yeah, there's many sociopaths are head of companies, CEOs. Uh, they just have yeah. a focus. Yeah. Um, narcissist is like a buzzword right now. There's so much content yes. on the Internet about narcissists, so many videos being that. done on it. And even I've written an article right. about it because there's just yeah. people want to know more. They want to be more yeah. aware of these people and steer clear of yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not it's not just to label people, but it's to be aware and not be manipulated yeah. or Correct. Uh, become prey to somebody like that um, mm-hmm. because they can have supreme confidence. You know, um, uh, sociopaths have high self-esteem. They like themselves very much. It's other people they have no, no relation to. So um, it's good for us to realize all that. And, and it's part of our education. So I wouldn't say that a psychopath or sociopath, well, you know, from a higher level, from a higher level, a higher perspective, from a transcendental view, yes, they are lost souls learning about what it's like to be a sociopath and learning from the consequences of their actions, which they usually eventually do. So in that sense, all of us are still peaceful warriors in training. It's just that we're at different places in our own evolution. So I would include every human being, um, even though they may not be doing so great this lifetime. Got it. But they're still on the path. They're just not very far ahead. (laughs) And I believe we're all on a spiritual quest, whether or not we'd use those words or Mm or we're fully conscious of it. Uh, we're all here to learn, to love, to understand, and to mm-hmm. find out what life is about. Um, and, and some of us get so locked in tunnel vision to conventional life, to everyday reality, that we lose sight of the larger quest that's going on at the same time. And what would you recommend for people who feel like they've lost sight or they know someone who's lost sight? What, what can they do to, to regain that 
that that curiosity or that uh, willingness to look at the deeper side of life. Well, anyone listening to our voices right now, uh, I don't need to say anything. You think that's that's have, right? <laughs> they've had those reminders, yes. and uh, but you know they may find a book one day that inspires them and reminds yeah. them of, of the bigger picture. And by the yeah. way, someone came to me once, this fellow, uh, and he'd read Way of the Peaceful Warrior, my first book, and he said, "Dan, I'm interested in spiritual practice now, but I I have a wife and three kids and a full time job. How can I find the time?" And he yeah. came to understand that his wife, his children, and his full time job were central to his spiritual practices because mm -hmm. the, the stuff of daily life uh, will demand more and develop us more than sitting in a cave somewhere and meditating. I know yeah. because I've done both. So the arena of the peaceful warrior in all of us is everyday life, which is guaranteed to teach us everything we need to know to evolve as human beings. Great. All right, Dan, thank you so much for sharing all your profound insights with us today. I really appreciate you being here with us. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate uh, what you do and oh, you thanks. encourage, you share with the world uh, various various people and your own wisdom. So I really appreciate that, Celine. Thank you so much. I'm trying to do the best I can. Um, just yeah, very quickly, you. I just want to let all our listeners know if, if they want to learn more about uh, Dan Millman. And if you want interested in buying his books, you can visit his website, peacefulwarrior.com. Uh, you'll find the link in the description. Dan, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, really, it's been my pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.